Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we are joined today by Professor Cass Muda, who is a professor at the University of Georgia. He is the author of many books, including Populism, A Very Short Introduction, and The Far Right Today. And he is also the host of the Radical podcast. Thanks for joining us, Cass. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Just to begin with, your work on populism is possibly one of the most cited out there in academia. What is it like to have a Moodian consensus out there? Oh, I really don't like that term. <laughs> um, so at the moment, I, I just saw it at a paper I was asked to review. So it's common to speak about a Laclauian school. And I think that makes sense because Ernesto Laclau actually came up with his own concept of populism and a whole interpretation of it. Whereas I think what I did was, to a certain extent, just build upon what was in many ways already kind of a consensus within at least the literature I read and perhaps clarified it a bit. You do this podcast, Radical. There is this demand that is often made uh, in certain circles to keep politics out of sport and out of music, which is not the direction that your podcast uh, goes in. Can you tell us about Radical and the philosophy behind it? Yeah, so I've always been interested in politics, but also in the more radical aspects of music and of, of sports. I mean, I like punk rock, been in that scene I have never been a hooligan, but I've known them. And, and I've always been interested in kind of the, the low politics, the small P politics. Like when we talk about politics, we always focus on parties, elections, parliaments. But there's an enormous amount of politics in, in culture, in movies, in music, and in sports. And this idea that like you should keep politics out of sports obviously is in and by itself a political statement, because that means that you by much support the status quo. But it's also completely ridiculous. I mean, just look also at the UEFA and the FIFA on how they push certain political campaigns, which I mean, we might support, but they're still political. Like, I mean, anti-homophobia campaigns are political campaigns. And so I think we, we talk for our, our conception of politics is often far too limited. And so I want to show that politics and music have, have political aspects too. In terms of populism, it seems that uh, much of the discussion centres upon its party political forms. What can you say about populism as it exists outside of party political form in the, I guess, a broader cultural sense 
or maybe the small p politics? Yeah, I think that this was one of the problems with a lot of the study of, of populism that either used a specific definition of populism where it was kind of a mobilization strategy by, by elites, by politicians, or where it was seen as some kind of elite discourse. And I think the what we call the ideational approach where populism is seen just as a set of ideas that centers around an opposition between the people and the elite, that allows us actually to also look at it at the mass level and in all kinds of other ways. And so nowadays we have surveys in which we can see how populist populations are and what they vote, what they support, what type of other things they, what other attitudes they have. But you can also look simply at culture. Coming from a country like the Netherlands and growing up in the 70s, 80s, that was kind of the last period of a pretty much very paternalistic period of West European politics in which we we trusted those who knew, and those were priests or trade union leaders or business leaders. And that was really how we were trained. It wasn't particularly hierarchical necessarily, but we had this belief that, that politics was a skill and that some people were just better at it than others. And then I came to the U.S., And here, there is this fundamental anti-elite sentiment, but also a really fundamental populist sentiment, which is based around this myth of we the people, as if the founders actually trusted the people, which of course they didn't. But there's this idea that the people are good and the elite are problematic. And it's it's very different than, than how I was raised. At the same time, you see this. Populism exists also at at the mass level, but I think more importantly, it exists in culture. Like my example to my students always is this movie, Sweet Home Alabama with Reese Witherspoon. And it's a very quintessential American love story, but it also has a very clear populist message in it because it's about a small town girl, Reese Witherspoon, who marries her high school boyfriend in a small town, but then once more moves into the city where she by and large loses herself, gets involved with a politician, upper class, and, and kind of becomes corrupted and then goes back to town to find her first husband and wants to divorce and finds herself again. And it very much shows this kind of like heartland America is good, pure, cities is elite, corrupt. And so here in the U.S. you see it in so much culture, country songs, movies, there's been a recent uh, essay published in Australia called Top Blokes, the Larrikin Myth, Class and Power, and it makes a kind of argument about how elites uh, have been, in a sense, forced or chosen to imitate or appropriate what was once considered to be the tropes surrounding working class and especially labour or even left or progressive politics. You've said that some of the understandings of populism have to do with the ways in which you concentrate too much on that aspect, which is to do with elites seeking to appropriate popular culture for their own ends. Do you think there's also a kind of, uh, beyond that, what do you make of this, the changing nature of the relationship between uh, elites and some concept of the people or the republic? I haven't read the piece, so I can't specifically speak to that. But what we have seen, I would say, since the 1980s is at least two different changes in the relationship between 
the elite and the people. And so the first one comes out of neoliberalism, which is not just an economic system, but, but it is also kind of an ideology. And in it, everything is seen as the market, right? And so now the citizens become the customers and the politicians become the producers. And in this market ideology, right, the customer is always right. And so in neoliberalism, the power relation shifts. And particularly where in the traditional kind of more paternalistic elitist form, the political elite guide the people in the neoliberal model, the producers follow the customers, right? Because the customer is always right. So you do what the citizens want, what the customer want. So that's one shift in which there is not even a horizontal relationship, but to a certain extent, the verticals change. Now the elites are just following the people. Now, what I've called the populist zeitgeist is pretty much in the, I would say, the where we are now in the 21st century, where the elite try to act or claim that they are exactly the same as the people. So a horizontal relationship. And that... I think the political elite has convinced itself that that is what people want, that the vast majority of people want to be governed by someone like them. I'm very skeptical about that because many studies show that that is actually not the case and that quite often people look for leadership. And so, yes, they want politicians that represent them, but that doesn't mean that they want them to be exactly like them. And I think what we have seen over the last decades is political leaders, establishment, have kind of lost control of politics. And they have given it away first to the market and those who are considered knowledgeable about the market. And then to the people, and again, those who allegedly are knowledgeable about the people, which unfortunately are mostly right-wing populist voices in politics and the media. You recently wrote a piece for The Guardian about the ways in which US Republicans are increasingly cozying up to the European far right. Could you tell us what is the populist international and what challenges might it face? Yeah, the populist international is something that was called the nationalist international or the fascist international in the 80s, 90s. And it's by and large the alleged international collaboration of Populism, but in most cases, we're talking about right-wing populism and kind of the far right. Is this idea that all far right leaders across the globe closely work together, or at least in the same way as, for example, social democrats work together, or conservative parties? And the fact of the matter is that they don't, and they haven't. But it, it took off, particularly under Trump, because then Trump was seen as a as a puppet of Putin, and. Then Bolsonaro said something nice about Trump. And so there was this idea that you see they're all in it together. Now, it is true that there are a lot of similarities in the politics of Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, Netanyahu, Orban. It can go on and on. But there are actually remarkably few connections between them, let alone institutionalized connections between them. That is in part because Trump, by and large, was completely uninterested in creating any type of infrastructure both nationally and internationally. But it's also because all these politicians are first and foremost busy with their own country, but they're also very divided and particularly divided over international politics. 
for example, about how important the role of Russia should be or the U.S. should be or positions on Israel. So what they have in common is a kind of a amorphous distaste of the establishment. In a sense, what you could see the populist international is a little bit like the anti-globalization movement of the 1990s. They all they all shared that globalization was bad, but they fundamentally disagree on what the world should look like. And to a large extent, that also applies to the contemporary far right. And although there are now more ties than there were before, and I think more important ties, because in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there were ties between like neo-Nazis in various countries, but they were marginal. Now there are ties between representatives, like national representatives of political parties and sometimes even of, of presidents and politicians, but they're not really concretely formed and they don't have a clear agenda. What do you think might form a kind of a basis for some form of successful populist international? Is this simply a question of it being not the right historical moment? Or is it the case that actually, given that often, well, uh, insofar as each uh, of these figures and their, their parties are concerned with a, a national domain, presumably that's not going to change. So in what sense can, can nationalists uh, cooperate uh, on an ongoing basis and on an internationalist uh, basis? Now, if you look at the European Union, which is the most supranational form of international collaboration, and which actually provides significant financial and political incentives to collaborate in the European Parliament. It is remarkable how divided the European far right still is there, despite decades of collaboration or possibilities for collaboration. At the moment, there are roughly two groups in the European Parliament that you could consider as radical right. One is uh, the ECR, the European Conservatives and Reformists, which is led by law and justice in Poland. In a sense, that's the biggest party there. And the other one is uh, identity and democracy, IND, which is kind of around Front National, Rassemblement National in France. Now, first of all, so you have this divide. These groups are not in one group. Consequently, both groups are relatively small and overall fairly irrelevant. But outside of these two groups are various other parties that are also radical, right or far right, from Fidesz in Hungary to the neo-Nazis of Golden Dawn in Greece. What that shows is that even if you have a very clear structure in which you can collaborate, which financially and politically actually incentivizes you to collaborate, even then they can't collaborate beyond small factions. And I think that is very telling. Now, does that mean it will never happen? No. But I think actually the one thing that will bring them closer together is the success of their so-called enemies. And in that sense, they're always reactionary. The fact that at the moment, for example, Republicans are working together with politicians in Europe and politicians in Europe work together with Latin American politicians has a lot to do with the fact that the few things that they're very upset about, particularly sexuality politics, are moving so quickly. And and so I think that the more successful progressives are, the more the far right is going to work internationally because they get that incentive that they can't win it at home by themselves anymore. 
which at the moment in many countries they still can win alone. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Professor Cass Muda about populism and the far right. How do you distinguish between a conservative and a reactionary? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, today that becomes incredibly difficult. I mean, I would rather say conservative and, and radical right. And to a certain extent today, it has to do with how fundamental, how essential is nativism to the party. So the xenophobic form of nationalism is the defining feature for the radical right, for parties like the Austrian Freedom Party, for parties like, I would say, the BJP in India, or for uh, Rassemblement National of Marine Le Pen in France. But over the last two decades, nativism has become mainstreamed and has become uh, kind of the common position for almost all right-wing parties in campaigns. Now, the question is, does that make them exactly the same as the radical right? Right? And so, for example, if you look at the Conservative Party in Britain, would there be no difference being governed by the Conservative Party of Britain or by Marine Le Pen's national rally? And and I would probably argue, yes, there will still be a difference. Similarly, with regard to the Austrian People's Party of Sebastian Kurz, that is still a different government than a party by the Austrian Freedom Party, the rad- traditional radical right party. At the same time, the differences are becoming smaller and smaller. And to be honest, it is pretty hard these days to make a clear distinction between many of the so-called conservative parties and many of the traditional radical right parties, because they all of them push nativism, authoritarianism, and populism, at least in their campaigns. Trump's election fraud strategy didn't uh, pay off for him, at least uh, it hasn't yet. Do you think we might see that playbook replicated by others? Yeah, I mean, we already saw it in Peru with Fujimori. We saw it to a certain extent in, in Israel with Netanyahu. Should Orban lose next year, which is almost impossible given how he rigs the system, but should it happen, he will definitely not accept it. Um, Erdogan has done it before in, in Turkey. So I think this is going to be a strategy that we will see more. And in that sense, the question is, first of all, what, how will it play out here in the U.S.? Like, should this actually lead to a big defeat in 2024? Then others will probably abandon it. At the moment, the idea is that this is, this is working in the U.S. The other is, how will other parties respond to it? And and it is a very fundamental threat to democracy, not just in the short run, but but particularly in the longer run. Like I mean, we're there. There is a whole generation of of right wing Americans being socialized with the idea that the system fundamentally is flawed. And I mean, what does that mean in ten, fifteen years for these people? Will they still believe the system, or? Will they will they turn against the system as such? And I think that is the bigger cost than than the short term cost. I think at the moment most politicians know that they're that they're telling a lie when they're speaking about the lie, right? They know that the, the elections weren't rigged. They just play along because that's what the base wants them to do. But in 10, 15 years, we might have politicians who actually believe that Trump's election was stolen. 
right? And and that that is really what is worrying me the most. And don't get me wrong, I'm very worried about almost anything at the moment in in the U.S. But this long term effect on on the and trust in the in the political system in the in the U.S. and to a certain extent outside the U.S. But often the groups are much smaller there. Uh, it's really worrying. Talking about a. Uh Trump's base, uh, we can see that vaccine hesitancy or in some cases even vaccine hostility is seems to be very much split down political lines in the United States as well as uh, this uh, election fraud narrative. What sort of impact do you think that uh, vaccine hesitancy is going to have on uh, political demographics going forward? Yeah, um, so there was a, recent, there was a really interesting article by uh, Zeynep Tufetsky Tufeki in the New York Times about who are the people who are not yet vaccinated. And what it shows is that the vast majority of the people who aren't vaccinated yet are, are not deniers, ideological deniers. These are people who are hesitant for different reasons, some reasonably understandable. I mean, the U.S. has a horrible history of mistreating particularly African-Americans in terms of public health care, but also a lot of people don't have public health care. You have to remember that there's a sizable portion of the population here that doesn't have a health care provider. And so the first step to go there is already very big. They also associate health care with something they can't afford. And even though the vaccines are free, like a lot of people think, yeah, but there will be something to it. So it's important to remember that only a small group of those of the holdouts are actually ideological. And we have seen that as well whenever there were vaccine mandates. So, for example, police forces have been have had vaccine mandates and because they're extremely right wing in many places, they all threatened that they would all resign. And in the end, almost no one resigned. So I think what what this teaches us is, first of all, yes, in the U.S. it is very political. And clearly had Trump dealt with this differently, the percentage of holdout people would have been smaller. At the same time, the vaccine hesitation has many different origins, and some are Trumpian and some are actually very non-Trumpian. And so they're, they're racial. I think all of it shows two things. First of all, uh, broad distrust of anything related to the state. And second, how flexible and broad this kind of party identity, identity politics of the right is. And it can it can just be applied to almost anything. Um, it, this is not just about race or about economics. You can make it about almost anything. And that is in itself, of course, pretty worrying. Speaking of the novel coronavirus, uh, last year you published a journal article looking at how different populist right-wing parties had responded to the pandemic. Uh, what did you find when you looked into that, and what surprised you about what you found? Yeah, so um, my former graduate student, Jakob Wondres, and I looked into pretty much the, the received wisdom, and the received wisdom was that the far right does not take COVID serious. The far right has used it uh, to crack down on democracy. The far right has been exposed in government by COVID, which shows its incompetence, and the far right loses electorally as a consequence of it. And we found evidence of pretty much nothing 
right? There were virtually no electoral consequences. Um, on average, they did take it serious and often actually earlier than the other parties, although they later would turn once the other party started introducing lockdowns. And the number of cases and deaths in countries that were governed by far-right parties was not higher than, than in those not governed by them. However, this was the first wave of COVID. And the first wave of COVID in Europe, for some reason, and I don't think anyone knows why, was very mild in Central and Eastern Europe, which was also the heartland of where they are in power. I think if you would update this study to the second and third wave, you do see a change. And most notably, what what we have seen is that the far right has moved away from taking COVID serious. Not that they deny it. Um, There are some who do, but most don't. What most far right parties have gone to now is focus on using it for populist protest against the government and say the government has gone too far in its restrictions and is and in enforcing vaccines and masks, et cetera, et cetera. So our study was was very much about the first wave, and I think that's important to note. But what we found was that pretty much what everyone said was happening and was beyond, in a sense, doubt now, but had never actually been studied was not true. And I think that applies actually quite often to big statements about politics. In uh, terms of assessing the threat that fascism and the far right poses uh, to um, or in contemporary societies, it's often said that one of the threats it constitutes is to liberal democracy. And in the period following the Second World War, there was a sense in which fascism was understood to have been defeated by liberal democracies uh, in the West and, I guess, uh, leftist regimes in, in the East, in, in, in the communist uh, world. Yet there's also an argument that liberal democracy or liberalism, in some sense, fascism is a, is a product of or an outcome of liberalism's attempt to overcome a crisis of democracy. In other words, it's not the case that liberal democracy is always uh, in opposition to what's broadly understood as fascism. And I was wondering what you thought of that argument, um, Cass, given that there's, it seems very often in the in the literature on the subject, uh, liberal democracy is often presented as being a, a kind of staunchly opposed to, to fascism and, and the far right. Yeah, I think that this is partly a definitional issue. Like, first of all, liberalism is not the same as liberal democracy. And liberalism is also not the same as capitalism. And so I think a lot of what I read in, for the sake of argument, leftist circles is kind of a modern version of the old communist theory of of fascism, in which fascism was seen as the stormtroopers of capitalism, in a sense. And this was always highly problematic, even though fascist regimes clearly collaborated with the capitalist elites. But actually, in many countries in the early stages, the capitalists didn't support the fascists for the simple reasons that capitalism always sets on the status quo, right? And so, of course, as soon as fascists became either the the regime or the main challenger to communism, capitalism fully supported fascism. Now, liberalism is in itself simply an ideology about about individualism, to to keep it simple, to keep the the state out of, of almost anything. Liberal democracy has aspects of liberalism in it, most notably human rights, individual human rights, minority rights, 
things like that rule of law, but is in itself not necessarily a liberal regime. Social democracy is compatible with liberal democracy, as is environmentalism, as is conservatism or Christian democracy. And so for me, when I speak about the opposition, the fundamental opposition between fascism or the radical right and liberal democracy, it's about the system which combines popular sovereignty and majority rule with rule of law, separation of powers, minority rights. And and in that sense, I, I think they are clearly opposites. With regard to liberalism as an ideology, again, they are clearly opposites because liberalism is fundamentally opposed to, to an enforced collectivity. If you talk about capitalism, uh, then, we're ta- then we have a very different com- conversation, of course. I mean, and again, I think this is actually a much more interesting conversation to have at the moment, is what is the role of, let's say, the business elites in both the rise of and, and the mainstreaming of the far right? Now, obviously, they played a dubious role in the United States, They've played a a very destructive role in Brazil, and they might play a a much more, uh, an equally problematic role in some other countries in Latin America, which are now moving to the right. So I think it's important to distinguish between the different things, but I don't think that fundamentally, like liberal democracy is, is compatible with fascism. Uh, just finally, Cass, uh, on your podcast, Radical, you all, one of the questions you always ask your guests is, uh, what is their favourite political song and why? So I thought I'd turn the tables. What's your favourite political song? Yeah, but I always tell them that this question is coming. So, um, <laughs> oh, my Lord, um, that's difficult. So I have, one, I have one Dutch song, which doesn't help anyone, but it's called Over the Muur, um, which is uh, Across the Wall which is a kind of a two relativist song about, um, it's about birds who fly across the wall in, from east to, to West Berlin and back. And it's kind of about that both systems have good and bad things. And, and I personally, I think it's a bit too both-sidest, but, but it's a beautiful song as well. English Cheyenne by Good Riddance, a California-based punk rock band, uh, Cheyenne is a, is a kind of an anti-racist song. I actually use some of the lyrics as a, for one of my, my edited books, Racist Extremism in Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, overall, Good Riddance is an amazing band, but that song has really good lyrics. Well, that's all we've got time for. Cass, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, you're at Cass Mutter, and your podcast is Radical. Uh, that's with a K and two A's. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you then. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish.
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab. For random chances, dances and cheeky glances. For rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.